0: Hey there, welcome to another episode of Teams at Work. My name is Daria Gutnik, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Bunch. I'm co-hosting the show with Anthony Rio, who is also my co-founder and our COO. We are on a mission to help anyone become a great leader. And together with our team, we're building an AI leadership coach to achieve exactly that. This podcast is for a new generation of leaders. Every episode, we talk to an inspiring guest who is running a high-performance team or a company to learn about their journey and what they do in their day-to-day to be an effective leader.
1: So no matter if you're leading a team already or simply interested in becoming more effective at work, you can build your leadership skills by investing as little as two minutes a day with our AI leadership coach. If you're curious, download it for free on the Apple App Store today by simply searching Bunch Leadership coach. Your journey starts with a quick assessment of what kind of leader you are today, and then you will receive personalized daily leadership tips to help you grow faster into the leader you want to become tomorrow. Our guest in today's episode is James McClure, an ex-Airbnb and Google exec turned leadership coach and angel investor who's now focused full-time on helping leaders just like his coach did early in his career. We talked to James about his first business when he was just a kid, selling non-veggie snacks in a veggie-only school, and his later transition from operator to coach. We also covered many more topics like removing bias in recruiting, self-coaching, and how to manage parenthood and career. It's always fun and a huge pleasure to chat with James, and I think this episode has a lot in store for you all, including a few laughs. Let's get to it. All right, we're live. James McClure, super thrilled to be here on teams that work with you—an operator, a coach, a leader by definition, but also title. Um, super excited to get going on this. And um, my first question is: Where did it all begin? Where did your leadership journey begin?
2: Well, thanks for having me on. Um, see, what I mean, some of it is—it's well, e- it's easier to look back and try and find the opportunity, the things that happened, rather than you Realizing at the time, so I think leadership is something that sort of ends up happening rather than you sometimes consciously doing it. I think you can see some of it almost at like at sort of school. So I went to a quite like non traditional, almost like a hippie school where there was a school self government system, it was vegetarian, there weren't really that many rules. The all the teachers were called by the first name, which is quite unusual, particularly in the UK. And that, that had, I mentioned it had like a school self government system, so we'd do things like I can remember there being uh, like should we have Nestle products in the school shop? It was when during some like baby milk challenges, it Formula stuff in Africa. And so I think some of the leadership first was actually getting involved in some of that school self-government. So we actually had one time, I didn't organize this, but I was a part of it. We actually had, a, we went on strike. So one morning, I can't even remember why, but as pupils, we refused to go to lessons on one morning. I genuinely don't know why. We just sat in the assembly hall and like the older kids arranged sort of said it all I was probably 12 at the time but I think seeing things like that and individual action are certainly where you start seeing that leadership isn't necessarily the traditional hierarchical thing that you may see in other ones I think that's probably like the start of the seeds of that I think things I've seen is like leadership can come from anywhere and you sometimes don't notice when it's happening and I think that's probably the starting point of those maybe non-traditional ways of looking at leadership.
1: And if we can call it that, you think that was like your first leadership moment?
2: Yeah. Well, I I don't know. I mean, sort of, well, other ones of other stuff is sometimes, sometimes leadership's also doing what you're not supposed to. So this school, again, like being vegetarian school, not everyone was vegetarian. In fact, very few people were. So the first way that I made a bit of money was I'd get sausage rolls from, or like bacon rolls from off the school, like property, I'd bring them in almost, you know, like under the jacket and sell them for a markup. So I hesitate. I don't know if that is leadership, but I guess it's um, seeing an opportunity and having a go at it. And I think that's where, you know, I think that's somewhere, something where you can think about leadership in many ways. It's not always leading from the front and, you know, the glorious speech to get the troops into battle. Some of it's just, I think leadership, a lot of it's about seeing opportunities and, Having a go, so I think there's bits of it. So in maybe in a more formal sense, or in a more leadership can come in the underhand way as well.
0: So you were a worst dealer in some ways. That's
2: <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, yeah, hopefully, hopefully I was quite a good dealer, not a worst dealer. But yeah, certainly, sausages in uh, <laughs> sausage rolls in a vegetarian school was it was a starting point. Super cool.
0: I mean, it's definitely an entrepreneurial endeavor I would say um how would you define leadership actually if someone asked you what do you understand behind what like what does a term entail for you if you
2: were to define it I think there's and I'm sure there's like some very elegant definitions in books but I think for me there's like qualities that are in leadership so one of them is that the activities you undertake as a leader are the kind of activities that you would feel comfortable undertaking as an individual so that that's often called authenticity but I think it's probably easier to explain in those terms of would I do something with the tag of the leader and would I do something just me as the individual. I think that's a really important area of leadership. I think secondly, it's being open to being wrong. And rather than this like command and control bit of leadership, there's a it probably comes under the vulnerability area, but I think it's more of an openness to other bits of areas and ideas. And I'd say that the last piece around leadership is that there's a you're creating a connection with the group of people that you're engaged with. And I don't say think your lead, you know, there's not one leader in a group, different people in groups take leadership roles at different points, but I think that you've got a connection that you're looking to provide these leadership qualities for the benefit of the overall group.
0: Yeah. I do think that's very much in line with how we define leadership at Bunch as well. Where We really stress, that aspect of everyone can be a leader. It's really a situational concept rather than a person bound concept. So it's really interesting to hear. You've had such an impressive career and a journey so far, starting as a business analyst and then going all the way up to executive positions at Airbnb and Google and now coaching so many leaders. I would love to kind of look back and learn from you whether you think and your leadership behaviors or your leadership style changed over time. So what did you used to do in the beginning of your journey that you maybe kind of phased out or dropped over time? And what did you start doing that you didn't do in the beginning?
2: I think there's often in the earlier bits of leadership, and particularly when it comes to like leadership as management or building out sort of smallish teams, then you end up and I certainly did that the reason why you're in a place where you have to do more leadership stuff is because you were pretty good at that particular role. So I was like a financial analyst and then you do well as that, you get promoted and you might have like a person working with you and you've got a small team. So I think it's that in the early stages, the leader is often like the pace setter. Like you have a really good view as to how something should be done. You've got a lot of domain expertise. You, in some cases, this, the overall success and in some cases, like well of the team is much defined by you as the individual contributor as you as the leader, I think that's something which is quite, that also comes into a lot of like sporting type leadership roles where you can have, you know, you've got the captain on the pitch. You know, you have to, if you're not any good, you're not going to get picked in the team. So you have to be worth your spot on the team and then you get the opportunity to be leader on the pitch. So I think that's like the early stages of leadership. But then once you start to get more broad, not just in, obviously a number of people just means there's like less, and size of organisation or complexity of business means there's less time to be, The kind of the player that your role as the player becomes less important, your role as the coach or the manager becomes much more so. But also, you get more exposed to things where you don't have a clue what's really going on. And so, you actually have to rely on the opinions, views of others, and how you try and synthesize those to fit in or challenge or change the overall direction that you are setting. So, to to illustrate that by like an example, when I joined Airbnb, it was at the, the very end of the pure peer to peer. Everyone went. when I joined I was I I don't think hopefully it wasn't me, but um towards the end of us I joined it was like everyone loved Airbnb. Like there was almost nothing that could be said bad apart from you know, there was been the odd trashing of a hotel of a room and such like. But it was because it was purely individual sharing their spaces and that where the money was and where the industry was was you know, professional rentals, whether you're going to the south of France or a villa or service departments, etc. That was something which very few people had from the existing Airbnb group, had any knowledge of. And the, one of the first hires that I made was that head of supply who came, who was like booking.com, hostel world, sold to hotels. And it was quite an interesting one to throw into the mix because he was a very different background and style to the Airbnb OGs. But I think that's an example of where you bring it, leadership is also bringing in diverse views and not just diversity in terms of ethnicity, gender, orientation, but actually like diversity of background. I think those are the things that as a leader, as you get, as I've gone on in the career, I think I've aimed to build out teams that are diverse in terms of experience, background, as well as other traits. And that, I think, gets us a better overall outcome. It means you can actually encourage leadership from the group because you've got domain area expertise, as well as people who are leaders in their own right.
0: I have a follow-up question on that, of course. I know, Anthony, that you are probably... (laughs) wanting to go with the next one. But diversity is just such an interesting topic. And I think even though since a few years now, I think it's been in in our heads and in our business realities, we're still learning about this altogether, I think, a lot. And I'm sure our listeners are in very similar positions. When it comes to diversity, what have you kind of like seen work in terms of building diverse teams? just because you also reference it right now? I'd be really curious to learn kind of your Best practices, or maybe kind of like the things that work that or, or that didn't work when you are striving to increase diversity in your team.
2: This is one I've had many. There's been many like strong debates both in you know on calls in the conference room, outside in the bar, etc. And the way in which I think in terms of hi, I guess there's if I try and break it down into like hiring for diversity and then actually like managing diversity because they are two different and you know actually inculcating diversity are two different things. I think on the hiring side. What I've seen to be the most successful is trying to get a representative sample of the population that you see coming for interviews. I'm I find it gets very tricky when you're down to a set of candidate, a very like late stage candidates, and you're then trying to make a decision based on. And again, I'm, I always try to not just make diversity about what someone looks like or anything else, but also just the experiences they've had. You know, Have they been to university? Yes, no. Are they a parent? Yes, no. Like all these different things that, that I think I try and aim that there's a uh, proportionality of who you see coming almost like for first interviews. And that that's the best way to mean that you're going out to the population and you're seeing what the population has to offer for you, the hirer. And I think the other thing which I hadn't done in... I've, I've tried to do that in a few cases, and that actually what I did in my most recent role because we were quite um, to give a context. In ten people on the leadership team, there were three white guys in their thirties called James. So, like that gives an idea of like what diversity looked like on that particular group. But that when hiring for like a new member of that team, we I won't necessarily even talk about what we ended up with, but what we did for that department that we were hiring the head for. I actually told them what the stats were of who we interviewed at the different stages. So, you know, I said that at first first stage interview, it was like, whatever, 60% male, 40% female. The distribution looked like this. And that having people know that you're looking at it and that you're genuinely trying to get a proportionality coming in, I think that can help mitigate a lot of the angst that can come at that final candidate a candidate b stage so that's something which i would if i could do it again i'd do that much earlier and actually i'd actually be even more open about what's happening like you don't need to share who the candidates are or things but actually in general for hiring when you're hiring for a senior role where there's an existing team then to be really transparent with the team as to where you are in the hiring what types of candidates you're looking at i think is a good thing in general and i think it, i found it be even more important with the lens of diversity because then people don't feel that there's some like it's just going to be the same old type of person that comes in that may well be the end that comes out but i think it's the input metrics sort of come strongly on that side
0: that's a super actionable advice and i think even thinking about our own hiring processes right now i i've thought to myself i kind of wish i would have um explicitly considered that so i think it's really we kind of know that right like the or the composition of the early stages of the funnel are kind of driving the diversity down the stream and it makes sense. But I think phrasing it so specifically like you did right now is a really good approach to actually make that knowledge actionable and really, yeah, pay attention to it earlier, which will help you to have a better decision later.
2: Well, and also, there's this thing, I think the good thing about it is there's actually things you can do because let's say you're you know you're five interviews in and you haven't seen a candidate with a certain type of background then you, know, the, you can look to buy ads on a, on niche job boards. You can go, go out to particular recruiters. If you're working with a recruiter, you can go like, no more of this type of person, please. I've got an idea of what they're like. Can you give me that? So you can actually make it something which can make a difference within the hire, whereas often a lot of metrics around diversity are very backward looking and hiring's bloody hard anyway and it does takes a long time. So it's quite hard to, make that change. Whereas if you're trying to measure what's coming in, you can actually make some differences earlier on.
1: I think that's spot on, James. And I think as Dario said, I think it's something we've also learned and I think a lot of teams have, but I think it's still maybe slightly counterintuitive sometimes. It really is about the input metrics, right? And adjusting those so that you're not, yeah, you're not in the situation at the very end. So I think that is extremely actionable and always a very helpful reminder. I mean, you know, it's, you, you mentioned that it sort of was something you learned Maybe I wouldn't say towards the end of not towards the end of your journey, but somewhere along the journey. I mean, I'd love to flip back over to you before we talk about sort of the move from operator to coach, which I I want to definitely spend some time on. And then, of course, just as a coach, I want to get a sense of sort of, you know, that journey from and, you know, a lot of our audience is first time managers, right? First time sort of, you know, leaders, right? How was that journey for you, and how did your leadership style adjust over time? Like, you know, as you went from I C to manager to manager of managers, because you really have done the really the whole track, and then you've gone over to coach. But like, before we get over to the coach part, that journey and did your leadership style evolve, and how?
2: Yeah, I think the I think some of the benefits that I've, I had was being going through some of those different stages in different, both not just different countries, but different markets as well. So if I think of like the first management experience was in Australia. It was like a small team of one person, so uh, me and him, then moved to Singapore and had like a small, but very diverse team of like five, then building out a team there of like 25 to 40. So I think being in different places and actually working with people from different nationalities means that what I learned was the importance of communication. And that's actually, I got quite fortunate in that, well, it's not to say fortunate, but because I had many of my team in Singapore, the majority of them had English as a second language, I had to be much, much clearer with what I would, even just how I spoke. I've got a relatively strong London accent, but I had a different voice when I was talking to my Vietnamese team in Singapore. I'd announce it much more slowly and go through and that, but actually being really clear about what you're doing as a leader, what the company is doing as a leadership group and how you communicate that. I think those are things that I got, I think, fortunate that I had to be much clearer in what I was doing and how I was representing what was important about what the company was doing for the markets we were working on, but also for the individuals early. I think the other thing which I learned through some of that communication, which I wish I could go back and do differently, and I think a, a phrase which has stuck with me is trying to have a fairness of process as well as a fairness of outcome. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Like I did my first... Reorganisation. When I had a team of probably like we got up to twelve, and so we had to move a few different. The market was growing. We needed to make some changes. That we had to sort out something in terms of organized structure. Everyone could realise. But what I pretty much did was worked out how it should be, told everyone, and then sort of announced it. And actually, someone left during the, the process that I regret that they left. And actually, if I'd I had a good relationship with her and I spoke to her in the sort of after she resigned and then there the exit bits of, so what could have done differently around this? Because it seems that this was one of the main areas. And she went, Oh, well, if I was in your situation, I'd have made the decision that you did. It just came as a, a, quite a surprise, and B, I didn't feel like I had any input to it. And that really put a bit of a light bulb on for me that you can have an outcome that is, you know, I'm like kind of a mathematician by training. I've got quite an analytical background. There's that danger of feeling that there's a right answer, but that you can have like what ends up being probably a sensible way to go. But if people don't know what's going on, then they don't feel bought into what's happening. But also you actually like lose a bit of trust as a leader because people don't know what they're going to walk into in any team meeting or any one-to-one. So I think a big thing that I learned that I don't do anymore that I did do early was surprise, but also like almost trying to rely on either myself or like a small group to be, clever enough to work it out for everyone but actually being open as to you know here's what we're considering here's what the things are i'm not going to promise you're going to like how it all goes but this is what's happening and here's the opportunity to discuss so let like say that's a bit of a yeah even thinking about that on the moment is a bit of a painful one because it's one of those like and again like as you are talking about the transition from ic to manager like i said before you, you get typically promoted from ic to manager because you're really good at, as, as an ic and what you do it doesn't Yes, you can go on a couple of courses, but actually no one tests whether you're a good manager in the slightest. And when you've got the kind of roles which prize pace, rigor, like clarity of what you're doing, and you try and just do stuff quickly and move along. That actually, when it comes to the people side of things, being more measured and doing things, not slowly, but in a way that people recognize what's happening, I think is something that I've always aimed to do. Obviously, doesn't always happen. You know, there's MA or things that come along which mean it's surprise. But I think there's things which are much more in your control or much more in a local area of control that you can help people to understand and see what is coming versus just a ta da moment.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think there's so many ways. I always try to label that. Is it buy in? Is it what is that process and what is that art? Because I think that is sort of the the art of everyone's sort of unique way of finding their own management style. And I, I would love to jump back over or jump now to coaching because you have kind of done the operator, you know, the really kind of the full operator journey. And now you are a coach. So I'm very curious, first of all, why the transition? And I know a little bit from speaking to you before when, you, when we first met, you gave me that journey. And I really think it's powerful. Why the transition? And what has this new perspective given you?
2: Well, I think for the coaching is something that, I was fortunate enough that I was able to have like an executive coach for both Google and Airbnb and I got so much out of it not just as, you know, for what they what the company paid for of, you know, can I organize teams better and all the stuff but actually, you know, and particularly with the one at and actually with, with both of them, like I actually think i developed as an individual better and and I often look back at some of the notes there about things of like what makes me happy and why am I doing certain things like why do I choose to do and why do I make certain decisions? I feel like I understood myself much, much better. And I think if you can understand yourself better, that means you can actually represent yourself better with everyone. So it's something that I got a huge amount of benefit from and you know then got quite passionate of more how to get more people involved in coaching. So at Google, we set up like a mentorship network connecting like senior execs to some of the early starters. So these things have always been important. In terms of how I actually came to be doing coaching, you know, on the more let's call it what it is, getting some people to pay me for my time to help them. It's actually not so much planned, but um, like I'm a fairly new dad and my son was extremely like premature, so he was in hospital for quite a long time. So that meant that my operator journey, I couldn't have done a full-time job during all that anyway. And something like this is pretty flexible, you know, if have to do some medical appointments. So he's, he's doing much, much better now, but it's been quite a difficult. I was about to ask. Yeah, no, 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 sorry. I mean, it's not, nothing read really back, but it's certainly you know, some really – challenging times. There's no way I could have been an operator and had a full-time job, even if it was the thing that I loved the most. So to some extent this came about of thinking of what are some areas that I enjoy, how can I keep, you know, myself keep the brain going as well as being a well, predominantly full-time dad, how to keep the brain going and still be involved in some areas and actually help bring some you know, either mentorship stuff to some small businesses or individual help to people. I think I've still I uh, I like to think I've got at least another operator role in me if not a few more coming up so i think this may be a sort of continued side let's call it currently it's a side hustle from being a dad for full-time dad it'll probably continue to be a side hustle from an operator role as well as being a dad
0: that's awesome i was about to ask i do have questions about the work you do as a coach i think there is a lot of really interesting stuff to explore but before we had that way just as a follow-up on that personal experience as well because i think as a female entrepreneur who does not have a family yet, but obviously thinks about it. And I do think we, my partner and I are, are discussing this, obviously this is never a good time for it and so on. I'm wondering whether you have any advice for our listeners on like this experience that you just went through, where you noticed, oh, I have extended family now. I have a kid and it requires more attention than I maybe anticipated or than my operator role, my executive role allows. How do I go about this? And I think the solution that you found for yourself is obviously brilliant. It helps you to learn from others. It helps you to provide value and extend a helping hand. I'm wondering whether you have any more thoughts or yeah, like kind of realizations that you had during that time, because I think a lot of people struggle with that exact question, right? Can I be an executive and have a family at the same time, is that even possible? Or does it always require kind of stepping back? Have you seen any other solutions to that challenge?
2: To some extent, the only advice is that until uh, parenthood happens to you, it's different for everyone. And you can only like, you can't predict what it's going to be like, regardless of like health bits, you can't actually predict how you're going to feel. I've spoken to, I'm probably towards the end of my friend's to have like have a child so i've got i got lots of people you know lots of lots, lots of advice and lots of it was very helpful but you can't know how you're going to feel so i think first you almost just be comfortable that it's going to be different for everyone in that side i think the if you're considering family then looking at closely at your employer and what they offer in terms of your leave would be an important one and obviously you know the i recognize as A white middle aged male, I shouldn't talk about how HR things don't help me because, you know, I'm basically the luckiest demographic that there is. But two, like one week statutory paternity leave and two weeks that most companies would give, it's really like even if you've got the most healthy, bouncy baby boy or girl that exists, you're not in a real headspace to be able to go back and do stuff then. So I think it's practical stuff. I mean I'd always intended to take 6 months off that was something we sort of, I'd set up um, already so I knew that taking time off was important for how we wanted to live our lives but even so just 6 months would have been a bit of a challenge but that's um well my I I think the, the thing for uh, becoming either becoming a parent or thinking about what you want from it is I think it actually it can give us a huge amount of energy as well like I know that if I've got you know, I know I've got a limited amount of time to do things I'm more generally more efficient now and I think I've actually I've been forced to improve some things that I you know, no matter how much in my 20 year career people have said you know, people said you take too much time over some small details, effectively just ship it quicker. Now I've realized that if I don't finish this email now or send this thing off now, it could be another three hours before I actually get to do it if not like you know the next day, it's actually taught me to be like, all right, just get it done. Good enough is good enough. Let's get it out, press send. So I think there's also things that you can actually even just on a pure, almost imagining your performance reviews from previous bits, it actually has given me an opportunity to deal with some stuff that I'd never really dealt with before through a bit of um challenge of time. So I said, I think to summarize it, like genuinely anyone who's giving advice on this can only give advice from their personal experiences. So that's true of any situation, but this more than anything else. But I think think about what this means for you and your partner, family. Mm-hmm. And is this a point in your life where you want to take more time out? You actually want to have this as the opportunity to work harder because I know many people who do it in, in that aspect, but you have to have the support around you and that everyone needs to be clear as to what you're doing. And the last bit is no matter how clever you think you're being, you may not be clever enough. So I'd have it <coughs> set that I was going to finish like the previous role Whatever, two three weeks before the baby was born, you know, we'd have a like you know time to sort out the baby room and do all this sort of stuff, and then have a nice like. So even then, I ended up working. I hadn't arranged my paternity leave because obviously I was finishing, and then I had to basically just disappear for two weeks and then come back and finish my notice as my baby just came out of hospital. So earlier, yeah. So like, even if you've got a, what you think is a really good plan or a plan you're very happy with and you've planned out nicely, lots of stuff can happen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I started thinking about it. Was that helpful in any sense? Or was that more terrifying than useful?
0: It was very helpful. No, no, no. I was following up because I do think it's a difficult topic. And there isn't, as you said, there isn't like any like high functioning blueprints that we all can use, whatever. So hearing perspectives is really helpful on this topic. And I also talked to um, another founder actually yesterday who has four kids, believe it or not. And (laughs) I was asking him, like, how did you do it? And what what were your tricks? And he kind of said a similar thing. Like he only was able to reflect on his own perspective and journey. But I definitely think every bit of experience and personal journeys helps here, because I do think there is a lot of listeners out there that are probably either in a similar situation already or considering. So definitely very helpful. Now, kind of bringing it full circle to you as a coach, of course, you do get to listen to some of the most authentic, open, and vulnerable moments of the leaders out there. And I'm, of course, and I think I probably speak for our listeners as well, very curious to hear what are the current challenges out there? What do people struggle with? What themes are you observing that are currently, yeah, the the biggest challenges for leaders?
2: So I think the things I've been seeing across the various coaching sessions and the leaders that I work with, you can really put it down in the people category, and if you to put it on like the slide, it's hiring, retention, motivation. But I think what kind of underlies a lot of that is why are people coming to work and what do they want to get out of it? And in some cases, that's actually the leader themselves thinking, coming up to maybe like a big event either in the company or their personal life is like, do I really want to double down and do this for the next two to four years, but also for their teams? Like, why do they? get up and whether they come to the office or not, but why do they get up and open up the laptop and do those things as well? And then the challenges in finding the finding and developing and retaining the talent. I think the most interesting of those is actually the motivation piece. Because if you've got the motivation and the excitement for your existing team, then uh, like obviously some jobs and companies it's easier to hire for from others. But I think any place where you've got a really strong purpose and that the leaders are excited about what's happening, then it becomes a much more desirable place for the team to be. So so I think the things I can see is people questioning almost within themselves, why are they in this situation? Is this what they want to continue doing? And then it almost becomes, almost if they've convinced themselves of that, then it becomes more about, okay, then how can I bring that to everyone else? Because often conversations start with, there's a challenge in the team. But again, I hesitate to say more often than not, but a good proportion of the times, when you start to dig into that there's a misalignment in the team, or you know, there's an underperforming person, or like, challenges there, it actually comes back to something that the leader's uncertain about themselves, or is an area that they've wanted to develop for a while. So it's interesting how the business, or the company can sometimes be a manifestation of the leader themselves.
1: I really enjoyed that perspective, James. And to be honest, it's a bit of a personal, a personal, I don't know what to call it, a hack or a heuristic, at least on my end. I always sort of, whenever there's sort of a conversation about what can we change, what can we do, you know, these moments, these operating moments, I often try and ask myself that question, like sort of just the, I guess the preparatory preface reflection question, how am I connected to it? But I had a, we had a conversation with a really interesting coach just the other day And what she was saying, she was a coach for female leaders. And what she was saying was, and I'm curious to hear what you think about this. And this was definitely not on script or anything, but like, it's a perfect follow-up. She was really saying, we often obviously overlook that sort of, I guess, that inner work, right? You just, you're throughout life, you're going through your career in this inner work. And I think inner work is a very broad concept, but essentially almost this process of trying to find your... I guess what people kind of called the authentic self in a way, and almost treating this whole journey, not as if you're searching for something that's out there, right? Like there is a specific leadership style that works. There are behaviors that work, but almost in those moments doing that flip and going, who am I in this moment and how can I find that? And then sort of almost project outwards. I know it's, it's slightly kind of out there and abstract, but I think that is kind of on the micro in the moment that is that process, right? So I'm curious to hear what you, if you agree, disagree, or what you think about that.
2: I've probably Actually, I was about to say I enjoy doing, and it's true I, I enjoy doing, and it takes a bit of trust. I wouldn't do this in the first session with uh, with someone, but particularly when either people that I've worked with in the past have asked me my opinion about career moves, or they've got options in their life to take, then you know, there's the classic coaching thing where you somewhat bombard them with questions to get them to come to the answer. You know, that's the classic coaching stuff and there's a lot of value in it. You know, you, you don't give them the answer you go through. What I, again, I definitely enjoy doing it is I'll maybe do a couple of questions, but then I'll actually just say to the person, the way you describe, let's say, you know, option A for you, you sound excited about this. Option B, you sort of sound not so into it at all. Is that right? Because I think that's something that is of... and. I'm probably wrong half the time, but I'm asking the question, and I'm getting them to reflect on how they think how they feel the energy when they're in a particular topic and I think that's actually a really valuable one that kind of, sort of stumbled across as quite a one where you get to hold a mirror up to someone. It may actually be a completely inaccurate mirror, but it takes a bit of a leap of faith on your part to guess that you know them well enough to make that comment and it's quite a confronting thing to say, but it forces someone to reflect on. How they're showing up in it. So I think that's probably like a, yeah, I guess like what the example you you go with Anthony is that's like the more as in the very micro bit. And I think you can do that quite well, even as a friend for someone in like big life situations, rather than giving your opinion, you can actually just try and give your opinion of how they are feeling about something. I think that's probably a more valuable perspective than just your opinion. And also I think a more valuable perspective than just trying to get them to work it out themselves. Like, I must admit, I've got, um, I asked a really, really close friend of mine who's also a coach for some advice on something. And he started off doing some of the coaching type bits. I went, mate, like, just tell me what you think. Like we can do this game, but I like, just, please, I actually just want your opinion. Like, give me the solution ideas. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, just, just like, I promise like, I'll sign something. Like I'm not going to say if I make a certain decision, it's not because you said it. But dude, man, like, you know, we're mates. I really trust you. Just tell me what you fucking think. <laughs>
0: yeah. It's, I mean, I think it's, I struggle with this personally so many times being a psychologist and also a coach and also an executive in my own company and a founder to kind of differentiate these different roles because as a coach for hire, of course you come in and you're kind of like mainly the mirror and you do the tricks and you kind of like ask the questions and you're like nudging the person along on their own like reflection journey as an operator, that's always kind of mixed up with these like consulting, mentoring type of hats where you also are supposed to give guidance, right? So it's really interesting to balance these different roles. And interesting to hear that you also have these, like, funny moments.
2: Well, I think in those, like, uh, in some ways, that there's the good thing about being an operator as a coach, but it's also the bad thing, like, and I try and capture myself, but I'm not good enough. And something I would like to improve on is, I sometimes get carried away with actually the problem that they're bringing, particularly if it ends up being a businessy one, or even if it's like, you know, I used to love a good, especially in larger companies like Google and Airbnb, most people used to hate reorganizations. And obviously, if it's a reorganization where people lose their jobs, it's awful. But if it's a reorganization where you're just moving chairs around, that's fun. Like just trying to work out what's going to happen, who's going to do what. And like those are ones where actually the, often the operator in me gets the better of the coach in me. And I have all these like, ideas and I start I ask the initial question of I try and ask a coaching question but then I just start going oh you could do this and you could do that and that's one where I think probably the people that I work with who actually like the people I work with best as the coaches they can go oh, if I want your mentorship opinion I'll ask for it or like can we pause up there's probably some cool stuff that you're about to say but can we just come back to what my problem is so I think that's almost like there's a bit of the you highlight Daya, the gift and the curse of the Operator coach versus the pure coach. Sometimes it's good in that, you know, I also have a perspective as well, but then we're all slightly ego driven beasts. So the downside is, hey, look, I also have a perspective as well. Listen to me. I've done some smart stuff. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's actually for me, even the other way around, sometimes. Where I feel I could be clearer with my team and I get that feedback as well because I'm trying too hard to be the coach. And actually what oh, they want yes. me to say is like, what do you see? Please tell us? And so then I can decide, you know, do I agree? I disagree? I can ask a question. but like it's almost hard sometimes to read your, let's say, the sports coach type of persona where like you know the strategy you're trying to play in the game, please tell me I as a player need to understand what you're trying to make me do so that I can, then I can agree, disagree, and give me my opinion. But don't try to play the tricks on me where you're like asking five questions instead of telling me this is the that basically the calling calling the play type of behavior. I find quite tricky sometimes if you're too much in the coach identity.
2: Yeah, I think that that setting the it's probably you make your points. So I think it's like it's not at the proper setting strategy level. It's actually at the probably like daily slash weekly prioritization one where yeah you're like you, and I, I also thought this one as well you go how do you think we should do it all these kind of bits when actually you can save everyone a lot of effort sometimes by going it's one two three let's do it like this shall we <laughs> <laughs> tell me if you disagree like that, that's the important one to add like tell me what i'm missing tell me why i'm stupid that's actually another another like one i enjoy of right like, tell me why this is a dumb idea and that that I think it opens up the space to make it slightly joking that it's an entirely dumb idea rather. It means it's easier for people to raise the objections versus tell me why we shouldn't do it or tell me why this is wrong. I think. Yeah.
0: It's like the self-deprecating humor. Yeah. yeah. Path, right. Yeah, yeah.
2: I actually
1: really like that. I'm-
2: and again, that's a, maybe an English trait of things. The other one, which is a maybe a more like formal one, which I actually got from an old boss of mine, which is really valuable one is the, What's the pre-mortem of on this? So we're going to do this. What goes wrong? If this fails, why does it fail? Or if we play this out, what are the things that can go wrong? And I think that's a really valuable scenario exercise, both for whether you change your mind about what you're doing or not, but certainly from coming at it from that mindset, you think of the flaws much more so, and it's even more important when it's sort of your idea or you're part of the you're you're vested in it being how it is.
1: Yeah, I think, I think it's by far one of the most, um, whether it's uh, why is this a dumb idea or how might this fail? I think it's one of the most powerful things you can do in an ambiguous environment, right? I think we, Daria and I and the team, I think are are pros at asking why is this a dumb idea at this point. So we're always trying to analyze it and constrain the possible scenarios. But James, I want to ask you one more important question because I think we would be absolutely failing and you can tell me if this is a bad idea or why this might be a bad idea no i'm joking but um, we would be failing if we didn't ask you this question and i really want to because this is essentially how we got connected right You know, you said you had an executive or I guess an executive coach at at Google and Airbnb and it basically changed everything or it really had an impact on you and your career. The reason we got connected is because there are so many people that don't necessarily have that resource at work. And so there's a lot of stuff around building a coaching culture, building um, everybody's a coach. And I think Bunch has a very clear thesis on how we're trying to empower the world through technology, but also human and community connection. But like that's another conversation What is your take on that general problem? I mean, the vast majority of the workforce doesn't necessarily have someone doing that with them on a monthly or a a repetitive cadence. What can they do? Like, what are some thoughts that you've had over the course of your years on how they might help themselves or others or get that resource in one way or another?
2: I think a really important way to try and think of it, because as you said, the big challenge is that even within large companies, it's a relatively small number of people that even get the opportunity to know what this is like. So it's kind of like, it's not just only a big company thing it's only a very select group of people in a big company and by it's inherently biased as to who ends up in those situations so it's like one of the most unfair things it's kind of like you know the rich get richer type scenario that people who get the access to it realize what it's like and then you can actually go out and do it further i think the things that you can do at any stage to recreate some of the areas of this is number 1 there's actually enough coaching courses around, even just like free online ones, that finding the key, particularly when it comes to career decision, type, like those kind of big stakes ones, actually just finding the resources, going through it and asking, almost coaching yourself, like forcing yourself to write down or even you know, like record for yourself what you answer when you ask yourself that question. I know it sounds really like weird and it's a bit sort of like solitary to do, but that's just one thing which genuinely everyone can do and it's not as good as having someone talk you through it but at least it's a start i think like like anything in life just starting is the most important thing i think the second one where you can have a real great value to be able to recreate some of the best bits that come from coaching is thinking about like your own what's what you call like your own personal board of advisors that who are the people that you call up for certain things and i think it's important to have it shouldn't just be one person or two people or that you ask all of them same question if i think of people that i've got there's like if it comes to sort of like financial type stuff there's someone that i know that i'd speak to above all others if it's about someone of like are the decisions i'm about to take does that reflect who i want to be or who i think i am there's someone i'd call around that someone about like actual like businessy type situations i think that's something that in whatever role or whatever level you're at you can have that. It doesn't need to be people you've worked with. It could be a dad. It could be your sister. It could be your best friend. It could be people you've worked with. So I think those are two things that can be done to help recreate some of those conditions that kind of come from that more, like the more, well, let's call it ways like a high priced coaching type experiment.
0: I do have a follow-up on this because we actually just had this discussion going on in our teams at work community as well, where someone asked exactly that question. Does any of you have these, um, informal board of advisors. How do you manage them? Tell me about how you use them. And I think I 100% agree. I also, I think I answered something. I don't have this written down somewhere as a table or a list of people, but I definitely have them in my head. And I also have them kind of sorted by topic. I was reflecting though, that I think most people, when they start out in their growth journeys, don't really, like are very shy about asking for help because they don't understand the nature of the relationship and they don't understand how do they pay that back and it's like how do you how do i make that an actual relationship that is feeding both sides rather than kind of just me you know walking around asking people for help randomly what do i really have to bring to the table as someone who's growing and asking for growth advice what is your advice there what are your thoughts there especially given the fact that you are so long into your journey as well you have so many different experiences at this point and would really be helpful to understand how do you build relationships that then can actually yield these type of like advisory qualities
2: i think for there's basically split it into almost like people you know and people you don't know for the people you don't know this is often you know there's someone you see as a subject matter expert on something that's one of i mean just ask i mean pretty much everyone is connected. Con- and you, know, you need to be prepared that you can't take it personally if you don't get the the them accepting your linkedin invite or whatever or if they say no to your request like that's that's to be not so to be expected but you're no way going to have 100 hit rate but if you don't ask then nothing will happen and i think that often you know the times that i say no to things like that it's not that I don't want to. It's actually purely a time, a time like constraint. I think that is probably. I think people often underestimate that there's almost like just a general community of let's call it like humanity. These want to like you know, whether it's pay it forward or give back. However you want to call it, like people want typically want to help. And you, if someone you don't know, you can probably get an idea from their social media or their interviews or their you know what their YouTube or whatever that you see. As to whether they are approachable or not. So on that side, like just try, but it's going to be a, I don't know, one in twenty. But hello. how long does it really take to send twenty LinkedIn contact invites? Really, not not that long. I think then on the, it's actually harder for the people that you do know because it opens out a slightly different bit of your relationship, especially if it's someone that you know in a work context. Um, I think there's one side of what behaviors does that other person show? And I think like, if I think start on that one, that what I've done with particularly people on my team, the hardest one is when you're the manager and also like advisor on something. When someone, I always try and say, when it comes to career type discussions that I go like, imagine I'm not paid by the company now, I'm paid by you, let's talk about what you want to do. And often I actually try and do it like, Outside of the office, so we just go completely somewhere else, and that I think that is one that I'm hopefully showing I'm given the confidence to tell me really what's important and that hopefully the other person has felt and actually some of the kind of the ongoing ones where I'm on someone's board of advisors has become from those ones where it's like they know that I'll even when I'm sort of not necessarily when my incentives aren't necessarily in the same as theirs officially, I can do that so I think you can do that as like an individual model those things that you can be you can sort of tell someone what hat you're wearing in a certain situation and they can gain more trust there. But I think as the then as the person who's just asking for help, you have to be prepared to – you have to really be prepared to go all the way mm. because especially if it comes like to career bits of decision, you know, like you can you can ask someone for advice on, I've got this offer, what do you think? And then if someone goes, all right, well, you know, why don't you negotiate harder on this one or the rest of it? And you go, all right, well, you know, it's – like my mortgage is X and I've got to do this and I've got to do this and I've got to make this decision, you often need to be prepared to go the full way to get the full value from mm. people you ask for the help for. And like you can definitely get additional good bits of help if you only go part of the way, but I think it take you've got to be prepared to have the openness to them to almost like answer any type of question.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: And that's a very difficult place to be in, especially when you already feel, if it's something that, you're calling up your informal board of advisors around. It means it's important. So you're already a bit on edge anyway.
0: Yeah, 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 definitely. But at the same time, it gives that other party so much power that it it can be a starting point of a really good relationship, right? Because if you approach someone who you really like, kind of admire, you don't have a standing relationship with, but you trust, like, you know, they're a domain expert and they do reply and you actually have that depth of conversation, it kind of like creates a relationship out of nowhere, which is... The powerful moment of that right speaking of growth a very important question we always skipped but i really i think it's a very important one to ask if specifically i think if you are the one kind of like supporting people in on their growth journeys what are you still working on when it comes to your own personal growth journeys what are areas that are still challenges for you
2: one is about really genuinely listening like the, th- the one of the most powerful things i ever got told was someone going are you actually listening to me or are you working out what you're going to say and like that was just one of those moments of like I'm actually working out what I'm going to say and half listening to you guilty guilty and I I'm, and I'm I'm same here Better, and this is what this is like I don't know 10 15 years on but I'm in no way close to a finished article so like that's something which is I think true for a large amount of people but even just the awareness to catch yourself when you're doing it and go just like just concentrate and get more get more into it there's plenty of time to show how intelligent you are later on so that's one and then i think the second one is actually like we we talked about earlier of in a specifically like a coaching bit is like when does someone either when should i or when does someone want a coach versus a mentor versus like a sparring partner for ideas and i think trying to get that bit of balance particularly in this more like coach type setting that's actually the thing i'm really working on
1: well james keep us up to date because we're 100 at least i am personally 100 percent also still working on that because i think that brings us back to that point around what daria was making earlier around sort of how you actually coach someone in the moment and sort of the the playbook moments or like calling the play moments versus kind of doing the coaching thing like i think it's definitely it's not even necessarily a matter of how it's a matter of when sometimes it's the timing and when to use what technique like I'm definitely still on a similar journey and and so keep us keep us up to date on the learnings <laughs> that you make please
2: i mean like, like most things in life you largely learn by things not going quite right
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, typically how it goes well here's sort of down that similar stream here one of the i mean by far i think my favorite question now that we've walked through almost the life of james in a way or the career of james if you could go all the way back to the beginning, right? Hindsight is 20-20. If you could go all the way back to the beginning when you were either a, um whether were, were you were really selling sausages, no, that'd probably be a little bit too far back. When you started your career, like what would be a couple leadership tips you would give yourselves or just pieces of advice, of course, but like what are the core bits that you would give yourself if you could?
2: I think that the importance of like communication in leadership is sort of probably like almost like the paramount to art. And I think one thing that I've developed as almost it's like two bits I sort of talk to either people that work with me or I work for is there's a couple of things I sort of aim for is that one is that I start with hundred percent trust and this this one I, I shamelessly steal from an old boss of mine and then you follow up with the downside is it can only go down from there. So it's like it's actually you start with full trust in everyone, but you change based on behavior. So I think that's one bit where versus the earlier in the career you either are you naturally, you sometimes start with less trust in people and I think they're you know, just not a healthy way to be in general or you actually keep trust for too long. And, you know, so earlier in the career, I was guilty of trying to protect people on my team that needed more performance management or even to be like exited. I tried to turn it around or everything else. I think that's one thing of, you know, like start at 100% trust, but realize that it doesn't always stay at 100% trust. And then the second one is that like my goal for, people that i work with is that they hear anything whether it's good or bad from me first and i expect the same from them these things are hard to be able to do 100 of the time but knowing this means that you don't want you know again if it's about like, performance or bad news or some a project not going well whether you're trying to communicate that up to you know, like someone senior or whether you're trying to do that to with your team then that's a really important like trait and i think it took me a while to get around that i actually yeah, like one of the worst experiences I had was like really early in my career, I made a, like I was doing fine, valuing a company and made a financial model. And like I made a mistake and I didn't tell anyone about it because I thought I could basically work it through because we were getting different data each time. I kind of thought, all right, well, I can fix this thing. And because the numbers are changing anyway, no one will notice. And obviously, I didn't, that didn't happen at what the guy who's, this isn't like a consultancy, the guy who's leading the case, he basically just made me go in at like, you know, I was extremely young at the time, made me go in and tell the senior guy on the other side why well, it was different. And I learned my lesson in that one.
1: No, that's a good set of leadership principles.
0: I also think that it's so strange, but I had a very parallel experience as like a, a young analyst at a consultancy, a similar similar situation. And I think I still can remember it to the States, but so many years ago, it was such a painful experience when you make mistakes and they're in the millions and there is some board looking at it and you're, oh my God, how...
2: How will I ever live again? <laughs> yeah, and you also go, to, well, like, oh, I did this at 2 30 in the morning. Like, this sort of. It's so, <laughs> How is this? Yeah,
0: yeah. I can so relate to
2: this. I mean, it comes back to
0: this point of like, it's just sometimes the most painful lessons are the most impactful ones and the ones that stick with you the most, right? With Bunch, we're trying to like mitigate some of that, I would say. Like, I think there is a few shortcuts in the tips that we're trying to provide to kind of not let you jump or fall into that those rabbit holes as much especially in the beginning of the journey but I do think there is also value or power in going for painful experience as a learning opportunity of course we can't
2: I think actually like a third one I'd add in is actually i actually I would tell my whatever 20 x year old self like do more and fail more so I think that that's something that like i mentioned earlier on like you know I've got a tendency towards like getting the detail right and I want it to like be nice and always end up i don't ship it as early as i could do and i think i also has come into things where i've could have gone further and been more successful in certain projects if i'd actually like been prepared to fail more i think that's something which is actually like education doesn't set you up for because you're not taught to think like that in most like tidbits of education so that's actually a very that's probably if i could go in the time machine that's the one thing i'd say is like do more fail more it's fine no one cares
0: Great advice. Thank you so much. It's, uh really resonates, at least, <laughs> on my end.
1: It's a really powerful set of principles, James. Well, that is typically where we tie the knot and end it, because I think there's no better way to end than to look back and complete the mission in that sense, to really kind of take the advice and pull it full circle. I think there's tons in there for the audience to really chew on. I think tons of really concrete examples to James. So thank you so much for sharing those, just real examples from your careers and time as an operator and time as a coach. So huge thanks from us and huge thanks on behalf of the audience.
0: Thank you so much, James. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Teams at Work. Let us know what your thoughts are on today's episode. You can find us on Twitter at Daria Gutnick and at Anthony A. Rio or simply follow Bunch at Bunch underscore HQ. And don't forget, subscribe if you like the episode because we always have interesting guests would join us and share valuable knowledge, as well as actionable
1: advice. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing from you. Please do get in touch. At the beginning of the show, we did mention that we're building an AI leadership coach that helps you level up as a leader in just two minutes a day. Check us out on the Apple App Store and simply search Bunch Leadership Coach to find it. Try it out and let us know what you think.
0: And that's a wrap. We're your hosts, Daria Goodnick and Anthony Rio, and we're excited to speak with you all soon. Till next time.